What's up, everybody? Welcome to Exhaust. This is your now monthly installment, as far as free open episodes goes, of your podcast about why nothing feels possible. If you want two extra episodes a month, you can check out our Patreon. That is in the show notes. We've got some exciting stuff coming up over there, including finishing up our series on Robert Hughes's History of Modern Art, A Shock of the New, and a new reading series going through all of Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and The Last Man. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to get cracking on that at the end of this month. But today I'm excited. I have one of my favorite people to talk to, Robert Bryce, multiple time author, one of the most hardworking energy journalists out there and the host of the Power Hungry podcast. How's it going, Robert? Hey, Emmett. Glad to be back. Yeah, I, uh, Francis Fukuyama. I mean, this is all stuff that sounds really heady to me. I, I need to tune <laughs> in here. I'm like I'm, my reading list is giant, right? And a lot of books on my desk and I collect, I have a lot of books. I don't read them all, right? I, I page yeah. through them, but probably need to tune in and listen to let you all give me the cliff notes because that's probably what I have time for. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sort of the service we provide. So yeah, I've had you on my other podcast, Nuclear Barbarians, and I wanted you over here because I am a recent refugee from California. Yeah, uh, I did not move to Texas like seemingly the rest of the state did. <clears throat> yes. um, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Everybody's in all those license plates are in your neck of the woods now. But uh, I wanted to talk about your recent piece in Quillette, amongst other things. And it is called California's Energy War on the Poor. I thought it was sharp clear, concise, very well researched. I learned a lot about the state I didn't know, despite knowing a fair amount because of my own energy coverage. But I just wanted to read this paragraph to start off, where you mentioned at the top that Joel Gottkin <laughs> said that California is a great place to be rich. And you're like, yeah, it's good to be rich anywhere. But, and this is quoting you, California, the province that for decades has led the United States in cultural issues like fashion, gay rights, and entertainment has devolved into a state where the American dream is being strangled by a phalanx of energy and climate regulations that are imposing huge regressive taxes on the poor and middle class. And worse yet, the state's vast bureaucracy is imposing yet more regulations that will further tighten the financial noose on Californians. Wish I'd written it. Thank you. I, yeah. I, I don't know any plainer way to say it. And, you know, I, 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 was, I was in California last month. It's just an amazing state. I mean, the mm -hmm. beauty of the place is just unsurpassed. I mean, just yeah. incredibly. But mm -hmm. it's also a state that is just the, the it's become so the and I go on and talk about the poverty rate in California and it's funny I've had pushback from including from some people that I know well in fact you know it, it close to me oh well you know poverty's not that bad and you're not looking at it the right way or something like no here's the census bureau's own data mm -hmm. showing that they have a higher percentage of people living in poverty they also have the highest absolute number of people living in poverty and the shocking numbers of latinos and blacks and you know minorities living in poverty and yet there's this kind of thing oh well you know it's just not that many no it's incredibly important and this is in mm -hmm. a state where housing is an incredibly short supply and energy prices are skyrocketing including electricity prices going up at five times the rate of the rest of the continental u.s since 2008 when arnold schwarzenegger started these crazy renewable mandates in the state so it's an issue that i'm passionate about and california is proving the model not to follow yeah i mean it's funny i was i was doing some of my own research and i found a, a similar stat from cal matters that californians pay 80 percent more 
than like the rest of the country or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It was just, just, just wild. I mean, that's part of why we left. So I guess, and you touched on it by and mentioning you were in, And you lived in Los Angeles, right? That's right. I lived in Los Angeles. Yeah. In the city of Los Angeles, not the other area. No, no, no. Like actually the city. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. My daughter, yeah. Mary, my daughter, Mary moved to Los Angeles from Austin about a year ago. So she's, but she's getting a education there as well. So, yeah. I was about to say, <laughs> she's, so she's did, getting so a we'll crash ask, So I'll ask you, I'll interview you then. So why'd you leave? Yeah, well, for a lot of the reasons that you detailed in your piece and for some of the stuff that Michael Schellenberger talks about in San Francisco, which is a problem not just in San Francisco, but was also in LA, the homelessness yeah. and mental health crisis that's just incredibly demoralizing. I think that's that's basically why we left. You know, my wife is from there. No, I didn't. Yeah, she, she grew up. She's a native Angelino. Okay. Uh, she grew up there and she was like, we, we have to leave. She she, I, re she I remember, I remember it clear as day, like when it happened, huh. we were, we were walking from our parking spot, <laughs> which cost a ton of money because it's LA back to our apartment at night. We'd gone to see some friends. And as we were walking, a huge rat ran over both of our feet. Ooh, it touched you. Yeah. And it was right. It was like probably a hundred feet away from a charred concrete wall where some guys like cardboard tent enclave had burned down a couple days before. And this and is the, right near your house. Yeah. And this is like half a block away from where we were living in an apartment or a house or what? Yeah. In an apartment. Uh -huh. uh, and so she you had to pay said, extra to park your car. Right. And she just said, we're leaving. She was right like, then, we, right we got home. We got home. We basically like ran <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we were so startled by this like enormous rat, like uh, touching our feet. We were both, like so wearing sandals. We were talking a two pound, three pound rat. What? I mean, yeah, probably about three pound rat. And she was like, that's it. We're done. Wow. She was like, I don't, she was like, I will, we're, she started looking at places to live that night. No kidding. Yeah. She was like, because it wasn't just that, right? Like that's the straw that broke the camel's back. The Lots rat, of cities have rats. rats. That rat that broke the camel's back. Yeah. But, but it was, <laughs> but it was that, and especially like down right near where that guy's like, yeah, that right. homeless gentleman's thing, like burnt down. I don't know if he lived or died or whatever. I just remember waking up one morning and being like totally heartbroken that this person who was obviously collecting meth trinkets yeah. and like starting weird fires within his thing, like eventually the inevitable happened. And, you know, there was this other tent where a guy with sores all over his legs oh. was just living there. And I mean, like, I don't judge these guys. Like, you know, I've been sober for like 12 years, you know, like I've known plenty of people that have gotten sober and plenty of people who have died yeah. in addiction at this point in my life. Yeah. And uh, to me, it's, it's, it's the human tragedy coupled with the inability to acquire any sort of property coupled with the like fragility of the grid that was an issue for me and just the absolute asinine politics that seemed to be churned out at every level of the state in california um, in california like california is so wealthy that it seems to think it seems like a microcosm of the federal government and mm -hmm. it thinks it can do whatever it want without consequences yeah uh, and now the and consequences so, and so are coming. much and so much from that vast unaccountable bureaucracy and that's yeah. the part that i think that you know uh, look i'm proud of this piece in quillette and you can find it on uh, quillette.com but it, yeah it's in know, the show notes by the way I, guys. I was pleased that claire layman invited me to write it because i've been writing about california for a long time and and mm -hmm. also that i was going to california last month so i got to see it 
-hmm. And this, you know, and the fragilization of the electric grid in California to me is, you know, you can look at all of these things, right? But you and I are all about electricity, right? This is the mm -hmm. most important and fastest growing form of energy globally. Demand is skyrocketing. You know, we're hearing from all these, you know, uh, the NGO industrial climate, climate complex that we need to electrify everything. And what's happening in California, your former state, is this the electric grid is being fragilized? Blackouts are so common in the Bay Area that the local news media hardly even comments on them anymore. That was shocking to me. I didn't but know you, that. But you can go and look on PG&E's website, and they have a map, <clears throat> and you can see in Central California every day, every day, there are areas in Central California that are blacked out. You know, it's like it's so common. And so, what's happening? Standby generator sales are skyrocketing. There's a point <laughs> I don't even make in the article, but because the grid is becoming, it's so tattered. And now maybe reason prevails and they maybe they keep Diablo Canyon nuclear plant open and operating, which would be of course be the only sensible course the way forward. <clears throat> but Germany, California, you know, they're, they're of a piece, right? There's this mm -hmm. insane kind of climate religiosity around any kind of carbon and they've just, they've destroyed their own electric grid and they can't possibly turn, you know, get to the level of penetration of renewables that they claim and yet they're spending tens of billions of dollars i mean it's just they might as well just make a big old fire and just burn the money because it's not gonna work. <laughs> yeah okay okay so let me ask you this because you said you've been covering california for a while you know and i'm i'm curious about how you've seen the state change like has it always been this way at some level has it just been like a frog boiling in water like what's mm. what's the story here from your yeah. perspective well, I, I think it's just this gradual and incremental kind of, you know, these just this, you know, growing kind of just bureaucratic addition and then a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's the way. And I, you know, I, I'm no more, I'm no, uh, not as great an expert on California, someone like Joel Kotkin at Chapman University, I work, I sure. you know, cite a couple of times in the article, but I've used his work. And then the, some of the work by Jennifer Hernandez, who's a lawyer suing mm -hmm. the state over these, these regressive climate and, and housing and energy policies in California she's representing a group of latino leaders called the 200 and mm -hmm. you know underscoring and the, the the lawsuits that she filed are read like indictments <clears throat> of the traditional power structure in the state of california and they are that mm -hmm. but it's it's become this state that has become so stratified by the super wealthy who are funding these ngos and they're then you know then they're manipulating the regulatory system in this vast bureaucracy so that they can impose these mandates where you can't sell internal combustion engines in the state in a few years you know mm -hmm. or vehicles with the ICE engines and mandates for renewables all these other things are vehicle mile travel restrictions on housing that then raises the cost of housing in a state that's a million two million units short of, of, of uh, when it comes to affordable housing it's, all of these things accumulated, I think it's, it's been this gradual kind of degradation of mm -hmm. the, the free agency, I guess, I don't know how else to put it in, in the state, but you know, just the things that would constrain costs and, con and constrain the administrative state. And none of that has happened. And instead, it's just continued to grow. And the thing that's remarkable too, I mean, I think it's important to put it in context. Gavin Newsom is clearly thinking about planning to run for president. I mean, yeah. I think he's already kind of thrown his hat in the ring, right? You know, mm -hmm. by criticizing Ron DeSantis, who's the odds on favorite on the GOP side, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and Newsom is saying, well, pff, you know, Kamala might be from Berkeley and whatever. She might be the vice president. Doesn't mean I can't run for president. Yeah. Well, no one likes Kamala anyway. So, <laughs> so I don't I, I think he's pretty safe. Like well, he's looking uh, well, he's looking at a very weak Democratic Party right now. Yeah. The party of the president, presidents have very low poll numbers, right? Approval ratings in the 30% range, 30, 33, I don't know what it is. But you know, the politics, you your friends are temporary, always temporary in politics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean 
to me, like looking at California, you sort of see, this is something that you quote Jennifer Hernandez in it. And she says mm. like, look, all of these climate goals or whatever, she's like, they're really about, about deindustrialization and depopulation. Right. People are right. leaving the state and industries leaving the state. So it is not as energy intensive as it used to be, which means it's losing some of its fundamental like wealth creation backbone. Absolutely. And I thought that was, a, I, and I didn't know that it had lost a house seat. Yeah. That yeah. was, that was quite surprising to me. For, for the first time in 171 years, and yeah. after the census of 2020 and the re, and the reapportionment, the, the state lost one seat in the House of Representatives. It never happened before. And the other point that I think and point out toward the end of the piece is that according to U-Haul, which who rents, mm -hmm. you know, moving trucks, Last year, the state that most people moved out of was California. They were short trucks to move out of California. And oh, I know. Texas, <laughs> you know right? How much did you have to do? You rented a truck? We didn't. We 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 eventually, like through friends of friends, found a guy who was very nice and gave us a deal. And he was an uh -huh. expert and great. But it was, let me put it this way. Like having someone drive our stuff out there was cheaper than renting the U-Haul. Oh, wow. Okay. That's how high the prices had gotten while we were looking. Like, yeah. and we called yeah. them. We were like, "What's the deal?" And they were just like, "They were." Ba they basically said, in a very polite way, "You're fucked." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're happy to take your credit card if you like. <laughs> yeah, and we can't guarantee that when you show up, the truck's going to be here. That was the other thing. Yeah, and how remarkable is that? And so, you know, but to me, the the so, okay, so. It, it sounds like I'm just bashing California. No, I, I think I'm just trying to make an honest analysis of where mm -hmm. we are in terms of energy policy, politics, and the and the future of this for the United States. And because California has always been in the vanguard, right? Oh, this is the mm -hmm. signal state. This is the the the, the, the you know the lead dog state, or what you know what is that uh, you know analogy about the, yeah. the the bell cow, right? We're going to follow mm -hmm. that cow or that 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 example. Well, you know, look at what has happened. Look at what is going on. These are irrefutable facts. These are irrefutable numbers. And then you have, on top of soaring electricity prices, you have the Sierra Club gloating about mm -hmm. the fact that they're banned natural gas in now 54, 55 places in the, in the state, including most recently the city of Los Angeles, which has one of the highest poverty rates of any major city in the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you've seen it yourself. I mean, this, this is the kind of you know, this stratification of society where the super elites, and I think that that's the right word. And I don't like using that word elites because it mm -hmm. smacks of kind of, you know, a little, you know, oh, a yeah, little tinfoil yeah. hat going on. Yeah. But that's who it is. You know, these, yep. these, these very, you know, the University of California, Santa Barbara, Stanford University, all these elite universities putting at UCLA, putting out all these studies analyses saying, oh, of course we can do all this renewable stuff. It's going to be great, great, great. And we won't have a problem with blackouts. And in fact, the state's grid is just, you know, crumbling in front of our eyes here. And what mm -hmm. are they adding? In fact, just the emergency measure, the, the governor just a few days ago, Governor Newsom signs an emergency thing that's going to allow more diesel fired gensets. It's like, oh, great. There's a big win for the freaking climate. I mean, God almighty. And it's, it's insane. Right. I mean, you had you recently had Jason Fordney over on your podcast and yeah. he had a great piece last year, I think, where he pointed out that the amount of diesel backup had accumulated to the point where it, it, it matches 15% of like the entire <laughs> entire grade in California or something like that. Was that like, what it was? Because uh, uh, Jason Fordney is the editor of California Energy Markets, right? Is, mm -hmm. Do I have that name right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. it. And Maddie, our friend Maddie Hilly did right. some back of the napkin math and she was like, that's 24 times the battery fleet. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm making a note to myself here because I want to find that piece that had been added in the state because it was, I mean, that's directly relevant to, you know, a lot of big picture ideas about what, well, what I call the iron law of electricity, which is people, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And, you know, people are smart. I've seen this all over the world. They're not going to sit in the dark, right? You know, no, they won't. You don't even have to be that smart. It's just, they're resourceful, I guess, a different way. They are adaptive. And I saw it in Beirut where, you know, the electricity is short, where the, the grid isn't reliable, people rely on the generator mafia. I say in Puerto Rico, after Hurricane Maria, <clears throat> people will buy their own generators. They'll do whatever they have to do because they're not going to live without electricity. And so what we see, this is all over the place. California adding more diesel-fired gens. That's hello. I mean, Generac, you look at Generac's own investor data. They say, where do we see the most promising markets? Texas and California. Wow, what a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. As as I, my wife and I drove out to New England last week, and while we were driving, I saw a couple of trucks loaded up with tons of Generacs headed west. Yeah. Like, as, as I was like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. I was like, I recognize that logo. Yeah. They're made right there in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... And their sales, by the way, their stock price is something like quadrupled in the last two years. I mean, it's just been their book of business. Their, you know, a friend of mine in Houston, when she bought on, she signed on to get a whole house generator, like a 20 kilowatt unit. She has a year waiting line, a year waiting list. Wow. And she had to pay half the the money up front. 20 large. Yeah. So 12, 12 large, 20 kilowatts. That is crazy. So. You know, in looking at California, I I recently turned in a a deep dive on the history of the grid to American affairs. And California really seems like, Texas and California really, but Texas, you know, you guys are your own thing kind of because you're sovereign. (laughs) FERC does not run whatever happens in Texas. So generally people look at CAISO as like the canonical example of everything that happens there. And what's wild to me is the confluence of interests that sort of create this paradigm. Mm. You know, so you wrote the first book on Enron, Pipe Dreams, everybody should go check it out. And that mostly covers natural gas DREG for them. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, basically, Kaiso happens because Skilling and Lay, who you have this great line about Lay where you say he's an economics PhD who couldn't read a cash flow statement. Yeah. They were just like, huh, all of our weird accounting tricks are starting to catch up with us. Let's lean on the California PUC and get this electricity market happening so that we can arbitrage it. In the meantime, you had probably well-meaning economists like Paul Joskow or whatever, trying to figure out how you would uh, sort of use competition to throttle yeah. the power of monopolies, right. which I'm sympathetic to as an idea, right? And, and, and so then you I, have. Can I, can I interrupt just once, just for some quick context, because I think you yeah. know, maybe your your listeners don't. Know. So, what Emmett and I talk a lot about, and we you know we talk to each other a lot, about, yeah. But these deregulated markets and these creation of these RTOs, regional transmission organizations. So in Texas you have ERCOT, in California it's CAISO, but they're yeah. they're part of the 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 result of this push for deregulation that happened across the country, and Enron was one of the key promoters of this idea we're mm-hmm. going to deregulate electricity markets so 1996 <clears throat> governor pete wilson is a republican signed in the dereg bill and mm-hmm. then in 2000 i'm pretty sure it was 2000 or maybe it was not, uh, that george w bush signed a similar thing for here in texas and so what the commonality there is this idea that oh deregulation is going to help the consumer well in fact what we're finding out is 
can just fucks the consumer. And, no, and Enron in both absolutely. California and Texas succeeded short, shortly after deregulation, just making a boatload of money, right? And be, by mm-hmm. trading on the weaknesses of the way the market had been supposedly deregulated. And in fact, it just set itself up for these situations where the, the traders and the and these guys could arbitrage and just, you know, just just feast on the, the stupidity of the way the market had been structured. Right. And the greens were at the table too. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's the, that's the other thing that I think is, is interesting, you know, Absolutely like, important. Yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, and it's so funny, right? Because now I talk to Republicans all the time and they're just like, well, you know, the, the, the market should really help with green initiatives. And I'm like, you're already late to the party. Like yeah. NRDC and the Rocky mountain Institute have been on that tip since yeah. like 1983. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's working and we're going to, then wind and solar, of course, are cheaper because and they're renewable and you got to love renewable. And so we're going to let the market work here. When, but see, I think, and I say this a lot, and you and I've talked about it, this whole idea around electricity as a commodity is misguided from the beginning. No, mm. damn it. God damn it. No, wrong. It's not a commodity. It sometimes acts like that. And you can think, think it, it is, but it's a service. And it's a service provided by the critical network that you cannot let fail. And yet you just kind of assume that all this money is going to rush in where you think there's a marketplace. Well, that's not the case because Mm. we see that in Texas where what do we have? We have a dire lack of thermal generation capacity. Why is that? Because the state's market has been so corrupted by federal subsidies that all we're getting, all we're adding in the state is intermittent renewables, weather dependent renewables. And now the weather's bad and the renewables aren't performing. We're going, huh, wonder how we got here. Well, I don't know. God bless America. Why did you think about this before? <laughs> right. Well, and it's not just that, right? It's also that, I mean, again, ERCOT's its own thing. It's like, it's like the pure energy only thing. Mark Nelson yeah, has a great, only, and, and it's an energy Island. It's not interconnect. We have minor interconnections with the rest yeah, of yeah, the US. Yeah. So, no, so like those crazy Texans. Well, okay. Yeah. But be glad we aren't connected. We would have pulled your grid down too. And we, well, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> your yeah. lights would have gone out too. Be happy. <laughs> well, but, but the other thing is, is that like, you know, like it's sort of like what Tolstoy said about happy families, like mm-hmm. they're all happy in the same way. It's sort of like all electricity markets are shitty in the same way Mm. in that it's like really difficult to plan for capacity right because and listeners the incentives the incentives are you can't that you they're queered by the financial or distorted by this financial incentives that are coming from outside that can't necessarily Mm. be overcome by something they create inside right right solar and wind incentives right Right. Well, and just to, just to paint a clearer picture for listeners, those who might not be up on this. And by the way, guys, go back. I did a great interview with Edgardo Sepulveda about some of this backstory. And of course, with Meredith Angwin, those are in the exhaust archives if you want to go even deeper on this. But the, to paint a clearer picture, one of the things that happens is that if, let's say you're a coal or nuclear plant, you generate pretty much all the time, right? Yeah. Not really, but we're just going to say that for, for this example. You're basically running all the time right? You're doing 90% of what you can possibly do at any given time of day. But the way that the market works out is you don't know if you're going to make $5 or $50,000, right? Depending on how things go. Just try to imagine you as a person doing your budget for next month, not knowing if you're going to make $5 or $50,000, or, or lose the same amount. Or lose the same amount. It is impossible to plan ahead. You just have no and, idea what to do. And, 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 and that's a pretty succinct explanation. It's the key reason why 
Texas has not added any new thermal capacity. We've lost thermal capacity mm -hmm. over the last 20 years. So the amount of natural gas, this is an important point. The amount of natural gas fired generation in Texas has not increased in 20 years. And there's all this ahistorical baloney coming out now about, see, oh, these renewables are saving the Texas grid. No, idiots. You made the grid too reliant on natural gas. You retired over six gigawatts of coal. We didn't build any new dispatchable capacity. So, gosh, we're having shortages now. Well, why is that? Well, because your market is distorted. You've, you've, you've created the wrong incentive. You're allowing the wrong incentives in. And I've talked with people who are very close to the regulatory system here in Texas. They're kind of throwing up their hands. Yeah, we can't control these federal subsidies, and therefore we, you know, we can't control the amount of wind and solar coming into the state, and they undermine the economics of the thermal plants, as you were just saying. Right. And so, what do we do? So, here's what's interesting about your piece, right? To bring it back to California, people are <laughs> fleeing from California to Texas. You have, right. <laughs> you mentioned that it seems like everybody now where you live in Austin <laughs> seems to be from California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is it about Texas, despite the grid issues, that is pulling people from California, you think? Well, I mean, one of the big ones, of course, is no personal income tax, right? Mm. So, you know, and, and uh, well, say, imagine going from Los Angeles or, or, you know, San Francisco or somewhere, you know, place like that where everything is regulated and you go to Houston where there's no zoning. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. have zoning. Yeah. I mean, there's pretty, you know, radical disparity there. But I think the, you know, the broader points about the, you know, what's happening in California since 2008, when Arnold Schwarzenegger signs this executive order ordering 33% renewables that year to, to 2021, electricity prices are skyrocketed. You know, they're up over mm -hmm. five times what has happened in the rest of the continental U.S. Residential rates have gone up even higher than that in terms of just in the last year, and they're going yet higher. And, and that I just want to get this one point here about the, because to me, the, this is also the state that is, you know, the heart, the, the heart and soul of the Democratic Party in America. The, the state Senate has been controlled by the Democrats since 1970. You had yeah. a two-year period in the state assembly where you had a Republican majority. Two years since 1970. That was in the 1990s. You know, mm -hmm. it's a Dem the Democrats have a stranglehold, and yet here's what the California, the 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 what is it, the PPIC? What is it called? The the California, the Public Policy Institute of California, on on Latinos. More than one in five Latinos in California live in poverty, compared to 17.4 percent of African Americans and 14 percent of Asian Americans. Though the Latino poverty rate has fallen from 31% in 2011, Latinos remain disproportionately poor, comprising 51.6% of poor Californians, but only 40% of the state's population. So, wow. you know, you, however you want to couch this, you, you're, California is a state with these vast disparities in wealth, and it's disproportionately affecting the black and brown people, the party and the people that supposedly the Democrats are representing, right? The poor and the working class. And instead, they're just sticking it to them. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my wife and I were talking to my mom about this. She's, she grew up in Detroit mm. and she sort of like lived in the city as a kid, of like as white flight was starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said is that, you know, because of the way the racial disparities worked, that that also meant that all the wealth left. Mm. And there was not this moment where there could almost be like a changing of the guard where suddenly you had black politicians who were rising to the fore, but really it meant that whoever was left fell with the city. Mm. And I wonder if similar things are happening with the wealth in California, right? Wow. If we have a lot of middle-class people and upper middle-class people leaving, they're going to take their money with them. And that's going to create things that are even harder for the inequalities that we see 
in the state right now, you know, and I think that's, that's a good, that's a good point, Emmett. And, you know, just two things come to mind. So who are two corporations moved domiciled out of California and moved to Austin? Who was it? Tesla and Oracle, Mm -hmm. you know, now I'm not a big fan of Tesla. I'm not a fan of electric cars. They're the next big thing. They always will be. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, but these, you know, but the people that move with Tesla, these are the, you know, very, with the technocrats and the same with Oracle, right? The high end software people, you know, the, you know, these are the, the, the high tech ninja folks, right? Who make mm-hmm. all these big salaries and they're leaving the state. So then who's going to be left to pay? And further, when you said that, Emmett, I thought, well, what are the wealthy doing? Well, they're, they got their big house, their, you know, well, maybe it's yeah. a modest house, but they have a standby generator or they have Tesla power walls, or, you know, they have ways of insulating themselves and, mm-hmm. and rooftop solar of insulating themselves from these energy price shocks. They already own their homes or they can afford their homes where so much of the California economy, so many people in California are renters. Like, right. like my, like my daughter, like you before you left. Right. And I think, so, okay. <clears throat> We agree that California has an insane administrative state. It's a nightmare. I'm like living in LA. No one knows how LA works. Mm. Like the the Department of Power and Water, total black box. Really? Like, mm. yeah, it's, it's, I mean, LA is really an exercise in city states. It's like Florentine. It's not really a city unto itself. So yeah. there's a lot of, it's one of the biggest bureaucracies in the country. Yeah. Just to make it run. And that is sort of like Russian dolled within the next largest bureaucracy, which is the state of California. Well, and, and, you know, LA, and LADWP is one of the biggest publicly owned utilities yep. in America. Yeah. And they're very secretive about how they run things. It is. Um, here, I just looked at it. It's the largest municipal utility in the US, 4 million residents and businesses, founded 1902, 9,400 employees. Yeah, I'm just looking for their revenue. I don't see their revenue here, but yeah, but it's a vast, vast uh, business and they drive a lot of the same kind of renewable, you know, policy. And that's part and parcel of this whole thing. But, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to burn, we're going to ban the use of natural gas in homes for heating or restaurants. And it's just like, what is going on here? I mean, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, but you know, I, I wanted to bring up the administrative state thing because of your your point about electricity being a service, not a commodity. Mm, yeah. So how like, and this is a question I don't have the answer to. I'm just asking in an open ended way to see what. How do we balance the need for some level of technocracy, some level of yeah. administration, with bureaucratic like ossification on the one end, or just total out and out like lawlessness which has created chaos in the past as america has tried to solidify electricity like we can see you and i both know that you can see that in the early 20th century the late 19th century it is wild to look at photos of what electric power lines looked like in cities before the creation of the regulated monopolies right where you have these all these these well you see it in the third in developing countries today right where you have you know in iraq in places where famously their electricity short in beirut in iraq in india you know where the the theft is rampant where you know the private generators operate you know all over the place because they're filling the gaps in the grid for people in for their daily lives Mm -hmm. that you see this just massive wires that makes no sense at all and it is incredibly mm-hmm. unsafe and fire prone and all these other things. But you're, you know, you hit the right damn question here. I mean, it's the one that I find is uh, 
I'm not going to say it's intractable, but it, it requires a different thinking about the network as a network mm -hmm. and how we manage it and think about it. And that it requires smart governance and man, that is that an oxymoron, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, Hey, look, our, our smart governance supply is about as short as our coal supply right now in this country. It is, <laughs> it is tight. <laughs> and coal, by the way, I just looked at, at you know, this idea of, and I wrote about this recently is the, uh, you know, the, the, the world returning to coal, right? In 2021, mm -hmm. coal demand went up higher. The, I mean, that went up the increase was greater than any year in recent memory. I know that the growth in electricity generation mm -hmm. last year was triple what the average has been. We Electricity generation globally has been about 500, growing about, about 500 terawatt hours a year. Last year alone, it grew by over 1500 terawatt hours, almost 1600 terawatt hours. I mean, these are enormous amounts. And last year alone, the amount of generation increase was greater than the amount of electricity production in Germany, Britain, and France combined. I mean, wow. know, demand is just soaring globally. But we have this and we need new technology. A friend of mine put it really well this morning. We we're talking about, he was saying, you know what this is, is showing this whole myth of soft technology has been wrong. We need hard technology. We need a lot of it and we need it at scale. And mm -hmm. we need we need hard weather independent technology, which, mm -hmm. you know, damn it, that's nuclear energy. That's coal plants. That's, you know, and, mm -hmm. and gas plants maybe, but, you know, these are the things we need. And yet we, but we need smart governance to make them happen. And that's the challenge and it's the, the, there needs to be a shift in thinking that we where we can allow nuclear to flourish and damn it's a hard question you know how does that happen to get what you said about you know we we have to create some monopolistic entities that look like monopolies smell a little and have some government backing that is very clear and direct but I, unless we do that we're not going to get a better grid Right. Well, and it's all, and it also seems like, I mean, what, what was that quote you gave me the other day that the ERCOT's like explanation, like it's manual on its nodal system is like 18,000 pages or something like that. Yeah. That was, you know? uh, well, Ed, uh, that Ed Hers put out that number that the, the, what do they call it? The nodal protocols are 1800 pages. Well, yeah, 18, you know, 1800 who, who can pages. possibly yeah, understand this, right? You know, that, you know, that this incredibly complex system and what's their cure for what we've just seen? Oh, we're going to add more regulations because, in, you know, instead of, well, no, you know, I think what you're going to have to do is the state is going to have to mandate that we build a bunch of new power plants be, and make sure that they're reliable and that that's what we're going to have to do because the, I mean, last week, the capacity margin, the a reserve capacity fell to about 2000 megawatts. I mean, on a, on a mark on a, on a grid that has 80,000 megawatts of demand and you've only got 2000 spare. Holy crap. Yeah, that's thin. That is razor thin. And but we uh, need better governance. I mean, to get back to your point about yeah. where do you and I, we completely agree on this need to rationalize the grid and think about it in a new way. And if we're serious about reducing emissions, mm -hmm. then it has to be nuclear. There is no other way to get there. And what we've mm -hmm. seen and what we're seeing now and why the Joe Manchin's vetoing of this, you know, reconciliation bill last week was so important is that we've seen what this so supposedly soft path results in, in Europe, and it's total catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think the world's in for like a major shift basically mm. against its will. I think a lot of conventional wisdom about things seemingly running themselves is about to come to an end. Right. And that we're going to need more activist. I don't like that necessarily activist government, but active government or active regulatory. Well, and I also states. think the private sector has to do. Look, this sort of shareholder thing just isn't going to work if we want long time horizons. Mm. The quarterly right? share, the quarterly shareholder report. 
Right. So there's this sort of dance between, you know, sure, maybe more active government governance, but also, you know, the idea that, yeah, things don't just go quarter by quarter. Like, look, you and I have both commented on this. We haven't built a major refinery in this country since what, 1977, 1978? Well, no, right? no new field. I mean, we've expanded a lot of existing refineries. So our, sure, our I, I'm not saying we've done nothing slightly, but but no grant, no greenfield refineries. Yes. Yeah, and that's uh, we've constrained pipeline growth. I mean, dramatically because the yeah. you know the NGO industrial climate complex has been working very hard to prevent expansion of pipelines, and and well, that's the other part of the energy infrastructure. So yeah, it's gaseous fuels, liquid fuels, yep. the fuels that run the economy. We are they have been they've been slowly being strangled in their ability to grow. Yeah. I mean, eventually you get so lean, you starve. I think that that's, that's where a lot of this is going. So I think we're going to have to have like a much more durable, robust, long time horizon outlook on this, because that's what I've, I've really picked up from reading your books, your articles, listening to your podcast is that everything seems to be now, now, now. Mm. And that's just in time. Just yeah, in time. just part, just in time. And that sort of obviates our ability to part of the fatal trifecta. Right. That obviates our ability to plan or to frankly think system wide. Mm-hmm. Because it creates a myopic perspective where you're not like, wait, what are the transmission costs going to be for that later? You know, what are the sort of knock-on effects? It's like, no, it's now, now, now. And if you just do it increment by increment, then it's allegedly going to work out in the end. Yeah, but what we're seeing well, really is like I don't that. think that's I, true. I, I really like that idea about this, you know, this idea of, of thinking system wide and thinking durable system wide, right? That it's that it's you. you I, I wrote it in the piece I published in Newsweek last week. If we're if climate change is here and we're facing hotter weather, colder weather, or both, it's the height of foolishness or the depth of foolishness to make our electric grid dependent on the weather. I mean, yeah. this is just nuts. And yet that's exactly what we're doing. We're adding only solar and wind. It's all being cheered on by all the NGO industrial complex. And they have incredible amounts of money, far more money than the fossil or hydrocarbon sector, far more and far more influence in the media. And so you see effectively no critical thinking here in Texas, in California and nationally about where the grid was and how it's evolved and how we lack this ability to think about the system as a system. And so you see MISO warning about shortages. You see KISO warning about shortages. You see in Texas where we've already had six great emergencies this year and we're looking at more. And yet mm-hmm. there's no uh, anything at the federal level, no one at the federal level looking at this and saying, you know, we really need to think about this. And I think it's because nobody wants that orphan child. Well, I don't want to handle that thing. That's not my deal. That's yeah, like hard. who? That's too hard. Which, which general really wanted to be the guy that said the war in Afghanistan was not working out and we had to leave? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. wanted to be that guy. And you we know, have, like, we have to do it now. And even if they cling to the wheels of the airplanes as we leave, we got to go. We got to go. Yeah, this isn't working out. Yeah. So, okay. Let me ask you this. This is something, I don't know if I've asked you this before, but it's a question I really enjoy. You know, the, the older I get, the more mature I get, the more I want to know what people older than me know and think about yeah, uh, sure. about me this too. country me too. you know people with some experience yeah exactly so what have you noticed about american politics and american energy over the time you've been covering it because you've written what six books that's right yeah countless articles you've done one movie on electricity you're doing yep. uh, you're in the process of working on another movie yeah what have you seen 
That's a, that's a good question, Emmett. And I, I like you, I like to talk to people older than I am. And I was in Vermont mm. a couple of weeks ago and interviewed Meredith Angwin, who I just think hung the moon. You know, we hold yeah, the best. higher regard. We love, Robert, we love Meredith. <laughs> and, and Robert Hargraves, who's, you know, written some really fantastic co-founder of ThorCon International and just a brilliant guy and seeing how they see it. But I, the word that came to mind when you, when you asked that was balkanization, that mm. what I've seen is increasing and, and particularly when it comes to the grid and I have numbers in my in the data in my new book, a question of power, pointing out how diffuse the ownership is of the United States grid, right? It's 3000 roughly different electricity providers in America, you got 2000 mm -hmm. public power entities like Austin Energy here in Austin or LA, LADWP, or you have nine, eight, 900 electric cooperatives. And then you have the government sponsored entities, TVA and Bonneville. And, and then you have the investor owned utilities who on a numbers basis are the, among the smallest, less than 200 of them, but they provide half of the juice in America, right? You know, roughly 50% of the electricity sold. Mm -hmm. So it's a very balkanized system, but I see the same in politics. And that's one of the mm -hmm. reasons why, and you have the grid, you have these regional RTOs, right? And I'm just starting to understand this. And it's one of the reasons why the problem that we're facing with grid reliability is so difficult is that we have these RTOs that are regional, in some case, only a state like ERCOT. Mm -hmm. And then you have the PUCs, 50 different PUCs overseeing their state. And then, but they, their, their ability to rule or their ability to govern is somewhat constrained by the RTOs. And then all these other factors that are out of their control, like FERC, like this federal subsidies. And so, the result, I guess, you know, if you ask me what I, you know, as I've thought about these systems is that the we've taken the grid for granted. And now because of this increased balkanization that we're faced with this sudden challenge or realization of, hey, we've been neglecting this whole thing. Mm. And how do we fix it? And everybody looks around and says, Mmm, it's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, and how buck, did the and the buck doesn't stop anywhere? That's what that was the rule. That's the the fundamental thing with with Winter Storm Yuri. The buck doesn't stop anywhere. And and by the way, because it doesn't stop everywhere, consumers are going to be on the hook for tens of billions of dollars in losses. And it, not just the the increase in electric rates, because that's going to happen because we become, become too dependent on natural gas, but also because of the securitization of all the debt that was incurred during mm. the storm, which mm. is exactly like. What happened in California 20 some odd years ago. Right. I mean, it's sort of amazing that you can have a, an event like Yuri that I think I haven't looked at the math on this, but this is my guess because it's what, like it's, it's hundreds of billions, right? Something like well, that. Well, depending on, you know, it, it, immediate losses in terms of lost trade and so on, you know, 100 and 150, 200 billion, that number's inexact. But we can know and get some idea in terms of higher inter, higher utility costs now, the securitization costs, and and uh, and I think you know it's going to be lost. Well, look, I mean, just what did Reuters just report the other day? Toyota is cutting output from their power from their new, yep. from their car plant in in uh, San Antonio because of lack of electricity. What 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 did we fucking move to Beirut? I mean, come on now. I mean, this is just mm -hmm. <laughs> to use your line. No, it's 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 a huge it's a huge problem. It's a, it's a huge problem and. You know, I like that you brought up balkanization because it's, I think that's also what we see in politics writ yeah. large now. We're past the age of consensus. Yeah. Like that sort of, we had a post-war consensus and then we had, it was upended in the 60s and 70s and it seemed to be reformulated after Reagan on yeah. through the 90s into the early 2000s. And then after Obama, it seems like we're now in another sort of period of trials and tribulations yeah for yeah. what that next consensus could be but things feel more balkanized than ever and and divided and david french had a really good piece on sunday and i need to repost it on twitter but talking about the divide in the democratic party between the 
you know, the, the progressives, the, the, uh, the non-Christian progressives and the split between their traditional base, which are the, you know, black, brown, working class, rural people, but they go to church and they're mm-hmm. far more conservative. And he, and, and French broke it down. He had some good polling data, just bringing it down by saying, well, look, there's this schism within the left and that, that mm-hmm. old, those old, the old alliance doesn't ring true anymore. And so you have a lot of the religious more conservative people who are working class more identifying with the GOP than they are with the Democrats. And then that that's a long-term problem for the Democrats because it's mm-hmm. much more the party of urban college educated white elites. And that that is unfortunate, but that just seems like the reality it's something I see myself when I, you know, in rural America, where those are Trump voters. Why? Because they don't, they, they don't think that the Democrats represent them at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people are going to continue to have to learn some pain, painful lessons about that. Now, what do, this is another question I have for you over the course of sort of your career covering these things. Like, what were big inflection points for you mm. where you were like, oh, I see energy, or I see politics, or I see this totally differently than before? Well, I was talking to my son, Jacob, about this over the weekend, and this isn't limited to energy, but mm-hmm. uh, I, in, in 2000, I covered the Branch Davidian civil trial in Waco, mm-hmm. and where the Davidians brought civil case against the Department of Justice, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. So this is against the federal government for wrongful death. And I'd interviewed before the trial, I'd interviewed David Thibodeau, who wrote a remarkable book called A, a Place Called Waco. Mm-hmm. And he was a Davidian and he, his book was very honest in understanding who Koresh was and that Koresh was a pedophile and even was not a good guy, but the way the ATF did their business that day and in, mm-hmm. in, in the shootout and then the eventual death of some 80 people at Mount Carmel in Waco. To me, when I went there, I didn't expect to end up thinking what I did, but you know, my politics changed very fundamentally and in, in being in the courtroom. Mm and seeing one of the, the doors to the, to the Mount Carmel compound and ha- that had tank tracks on it. And I thought, wait a minute, they used a tank on American mm-hmm. citizens on American soil, 80 people died and not a single federal law enforcement official lost a day's pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's just, and, and then hearing the cries of the children inside, I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but how did I change? When I heard the cries of the children inside Mount Carmel getting trying to find their parents after the building was set on fire by Koresh or whatever it was. I thought, and this is done by Janet Reno and the Clinton administration and by the Democrats. Not a thing, you know, no sympathy for them. Oh, they're a bunch of Bible thumpers. I realized, wait a minute, this is not about left, right. This is about this, the police state kind of overtaking America. And so that changed kind of how I view government power in a very fundamental way. And I, and I mm. don't mean to be too dramatic about it, but it did. You know, my, yeah. my faith in the ability of government or the, or the, the accountability of government. And then, you know, how have I changed as well? I think it's, you know, I started on the left and, you know, my, and, mm-hmm. and you read how I, you know, over my career, well, I've become much more of the view that, no, the, the energy producers are heroes in this society. They've been demonized mm-hmm. relentlessly, but in fact, mm-hmm. they are the heroes because as Doomberg put it just recently, energy is life and the absence of energy is death. And it's just mm-hmm. that true. It's just that stark. And so I've become much more aligned with a more fundamental view on energy humanism and on the independence and liberty of humans enabled by energy and you know, to bring it back to that. And that agency is about ability to access energy in all of its forms that allows us more mobility, more productivity, you know, et cetera. So, 
Yeah, I've changed over my career, no doubt about it. And I'm proudly so. I mean, too soon old, too late smart, as my dad used to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, I mean, it's a very moving story. And I'll you add know. one other thing, the best political speech I ever heard. Mm -hmm. It was very short. Danny Roy Young was a restaurateur. He also played the washboard. He played with oh, a band that played, what was it, Cornell Heard. played mm. at uh, Jovita's, which is a famous restaurant in Austin that uh, later was shut down because it was a front for a Mexican heroin operation. But that's a different <laughs> story. So, so Danny Roy Young was a great guy. He was a friendly guy. He ran a place called Texicali Grill. He never met a stranger. He was always, oh yeah, hey, great to see you again. And you know, just a real character. But he, he, many years ago, I wasn't there for the speech, but I heard about it. He was before the city council. And there was some road improvement or something, some project that was going to be right in front of his restaurant. And he and the other people in the neighborhood or, you know, businesses in that neighborhood were all on, up in arms and they were going down to city council and they were talking to city council, don't do this. And at the end of his thing, Danny Roy Young said, look, I'm not asking it to the city council. He said, look, I'm not asking you to do anything for me. Just don't do anything to me. <laughs> I love that. No, that's, that is the perfect political summation of my view on government. Don't yeah. do anything for me. Just don't do anything to anything me. To me. Right. Yeah. And, and just leave me alone if, you know, to the greatest extent that you can. And so that, I mean, I, you know, I've never made that connection with the Branch Davidian civil trial, but yeah, I mean, that, that. I have changed. I've become more what I would consider a traditional conservative in that mm -hmm. I want to conserve the things that are important. I want to conserve our industrial cathedrals to use your mm -hmm. line. I want to conserve those power plants. I want to conserve the electric grid. I don't want to fritter away with these idiotic, you know, climate change, you know, scarecrows. We need to be serious about this and we got to get damn serious and we got to do it right goddamn now. <laughs> we are right right i mean i keep thinking this phrase from texas actually this phrase has been just spinning in my head as i've been taking a look at american energy infrastructure and just the way america has i would say really frittered away a lot of its own wealth That's both material and otherwise it's, it's right but and, and this is the this is the the phrase big hat and no cattle <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard it all hat and no cattle, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. But big hat. Yeah, that works too. Yeah. You know, our, our friend Maddie Hilly said something that I want to re, I, you know, I steal, right? What was that line? Oh, yeah. Attributed to different people, Picasso and John Lennon, amateurs borrow professional steel. Special steel, yeah. Maddie Hilly, I talked to her the other day, we were chatting, just catching up. And she said about all these efforts at conservation calls here in ERCOT, right? You know, and, and it's been hot. I mean, let me be clear. It's been brutally hot. Yeah, you guys have been in the triple digits. Yeah. And the, and the drought is very worrisome. I mean, everything's turning brown and it's just the heat has been oppressive. But <clears throat> what her point was, and it's not just limited to Texas, is this whole idea that we should all just use less, right? That, oh, we, you know, the way we save the mm -hmm. grid is we all don't do mm -hmm. as much, you know, we're going to turn off stuff. And okay, I get that, right? You know, I turn off lights when I leave. But she said, I just, and she said it with such passion. She said, just grind, she didn't say it this way, but I'm going to paraphrase, just grills my cheese, just grinds my gears, that we're being told we have to reduce our use to fit the network instead of building the network big enough that we can all have enough. Yeah, you know, I thought that is exactly the right. And that was <clears throat> now I'm not free associated. I'm just connecting that back to what we talked about, about the accountability in government that will used to be there for the utilities, that reliability is job one, you make sure you mm -hmm. have enough capacity, regardless, you, you build mm -hmm. in reserve, you make gold plate it, you can do whatever you want, but you make sure it works. And do yep. not come, do not, because if you don't, I'm going to bring you in front of the Public Utility Commission and I'm going to berate you and I'm going to fine you because you haven't done your job. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. No, I. Yeah, I mean, well, I agree with Maddie. Maddie's great. I was talking to her literally right before mm-hmm. we got on this. Yeah, but let me ask you this. Sure. Since we're coming to the end of the hour here, and you get me all fired up here, I'm going all all Joel Osteen on here. I'm just like on the I'm on a tear, <laughs> giving the sermon on the. I love it. I love it. That's part of why I brought you on. So, what's you know, you you ask this question at the end of your podcast. You ask ask about well, you know, what's been giving you hope? Yeah. So let me ask you, what's been giving you hope these days, Robert? Well, I, I'm long the human spirit. Mm. Somehow we muddle through. Mm-hmm. And I am faithful that after we do all these stupid things that we're going to do the right thing. And, mm. but I, I have to be hopeful. I'm, you know, I, I, to be otherwise is to despair. And mm-hmm. believe me, I do despair sometimes. And I do think of what of all these challenges that the United States and the rest of the world is facing now, they are enormous, I mean, yep. and scary. And we're, you know, we have a big lack of leadership in the United States. Mm-hmm. And thank, thank God for Joe Manchin, you know, that, you know, putting a stop to a lot of this climate related spending and, you know, this corporate corporatism, corporate welfare that was being, you know, trying to push through Congress, you know, in this uh, reconciliation bill. And he said, no, this doesn't make any sense. You know, so I am faithful that if, you know, that reason will prevail. And also I'm bullish on the United States and, you know, I, I, I find, you know, I can make lots of criticisms and I mentioned the Branch Davidian thing before, and I'm in vocal critic, you know, of mm-hmm. politicians and the way things are working, but the United States, the United States still has incredible advantages over the rest of the world. When you look at mm-hmm. demographics, when you, you know, we still have, you know, our children, are, you know, the baby boomers or their kids are having kids and it's a big cohort and that there is still an optimism in this country about the things that we believe in the in the bill of rights that are going to to the long-term advantage of the united states and also that i think what gives me optimism is that and this does not there's no there's no joy in me saying this but the failure of europe is going to and the failure of some of the rest of these countries around the world is going to mean reshoring and a lot of business is coming back to the united states because it has to come here because we have you know, a strong energy sector that and we can support industries that use energy. And so, mm-hmm. you know, these things are going to be good for the United States over the long term. So I'm to, to quote Molly Ivins, I'm, I'm optimistic to the point of idiocy. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you have to keep your uh, reserve margins of hope pretty fat yeah. if you're yeah. going to cover energy in America, <laughs> as I have found reserve out. Running I like that. Your reserve capacity of optimism needs to yeah. be higher than ERCOT's. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, you can't have those thin days. That shouldn't me. be 2%. You know, it no. shouldn't be just 2,000 megawatts. You need a good, you need a better cushion than that. It needs, to, yeah, it needs to be thick. All right. This was fantastic, Robert. Thank you for joining me. Everybody, all of Robert's stuff, you can check it out in the show notes. Highly recommend his books. Uh, yep, The Question of Power is his latest. <laughs> we're not on camera here. Yeah, we're, we're not on I'm camera. He's showing, up, he's advertising the book, book and holding it The Question of Power here. I'm holding it up to the should, camera when we're only recording an audio. You should audio. also check out the corresponding documentary. Juice, uh, how electricity Juice. explains the world. That's on the web at Juice for, oh, well, it's at Juice for All on Twitter. Juice, juice at the movie.com on the web. I'm mm-hmm. on Twitter at Power Hungry, PWR Hungry. My website's robertbryce.com. I'm omnipresent, Emmett. You can't get away from me. That's I'm right. That's right. King of all media. And, <laughs> and, uh, and check out the Power Hungry podcast. I've learned a lot by listening to it. I think a real on the ground look at energy in America. So, Robert, thanks for joining me. And everybody, stay safe out there. We will see you next time. Thanks, y'all. 
will control you 100% natural You will draw for the mass 